Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter. Today, I have a solo episode for you that is inspired by some topics and questions that have been sent in through the listeners. So today's episode, I have four questions or topics that got sent my way, and we're going to go through those. If you are interested in uh, having a topic or question addressed on this show, feel free to reach out to me. You can do that through the show's email address, which is just hpopodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on social media. Instagram is at Zach Bitter, Twitter at ZBitter, and Facebook is at ZBitter Endurance. The questions for today, I tried to group together to some degree as much as I could, and they include how important is a well-executed taper for a 100 kilometer and what does it look like? So this question, I sort of tried to open up a little bit to tapers in general too, because I appreciate some of the listeners will probably be curious about this specific question, but maybe not necessarily skewed towards the 100 kilometer distance, but also did touch on that. Uh, also, can you share a little on increasing speed with long distance running? So for that question, I talked about just kind of like maybe the, what the role of speed work is going to play within a long distance running uh, program, but mostly spoke to how to kind of introduce it or what is kind of like the order of operations with speed work when it comes to distance running uh, so that folks who are kind of looking to add that element to their training for the first time or for the first time in a while or just are curious about some of that stuff can uh, make some adjustments perhaps based on that. Third, losing weight while training for an event is keto optimal for this. So for this one, I talked about just the general concept of weight loss and performance, as well as took a look a little bit at kind of like the ketogenic diet's role in that potentially being something that would be leveraged by a person looking to uh, keep their training intact, so to speak, and also work on any body composition type goals they may have. Fourth, training with less water for an ultra, is it worth it or no real benefit? So for this one, I assume the question was basically hinting at, um, is it wise to kind of train your body to be able to tolerate running more or less with less water? And is there like an adaptive, like sort of thing that kind of goes on, like, where's the pros and cons within that? So we touched on just like where I would maybe advise someone in that situation or considering that what to do while they're preparing for their endurance events. Awesome. So those are the questions we're going to go over for this episode. Before we get into that, just a couple quick announcements uh, for this episode. If you are in the Austin, Texas area on the weekends at all, I would love it if you joined me for my group run. I've got a group run that I've been hosting with a few other groups here in town. Uh, we call it Outliers ATX. There's an Instagram page for it, just at Outliers ATX for details. But for those of you who are keen on hearing about that now, the group runs are on Sunday. We meet at Metz Park. We have a six mile, four mile, and two and a half mile option. Walkers, runners, strollers, dogs, everyone's welcome. So don't hesitate to come even if you have family with you or a pet with you. That sort of thing is more than welcome. We also have recently branched it out. Originally, we've played around with both an 8 a.m. and a 9 a.m. start. 
Uh, now that the weather's getting really, really nice here in Austin, we have a lot more opportunities and we've had some interest in people wanting to go further than the six mile option. Uh, and we've also had probably about a 50, 50 split between our kind of regulars as to whether they prefer eight o'clock or nine o'clock. So rather than just adding another option beyond six miles and sticking with one time, what we're doing now is we are starting a run at eight, reconvening at nine, starting a second run at nine. So if someone wants one of those times over the other, you can pick which one you want. If you want to go further than six, you can come to them both. Uh, we're also doing some clinics typically between the two. So there's about a, maybe a five to 10 minute gap between the finish and the start of that 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. group run where I'll lead a topic-based kind of question or clinic. Uh, so far, we've covered things like uh, proper running form, certain strength moves and things like that, injury prevention, the role of recovery days, the role of the long run. We've done a couple topics on speed work and how to maybe implement that into training and things like that. So uh, it's a fun group to hang out with. We got people of all sorts of paces. Uh, most people are there for a recovery run, but if you want to go a little bit longer, like I said, you can kind of group them together. Uh, so head to outliers ATX on Instagram. If you want to, uh, check out more details about that and make sure that, you know, every week is happening the way that's described here on this podcast episode. Also, if you are interested in checking out any of the episodes, minus the intro, minus the ads and early release, the spot for you is the show's Patreon page. You can access that at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. On that same page, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, you can also find options for ways to support the podcast outside of Patreon. If you're not looking to join another third-party platform, there, you can also find the links and details to the previous episodes, including this one. So if you want to see the show notes, get links to the video version of the episode, links to the popular uh, podcast platforms that host the show, or just simply listen to it on the landing page, those options are going to be there for you to click through as well. Also on my website, zachbitter.com, you can subscribe to my newsletter if you want to hear some uh, recaps on things that I'm thinking about at the moment. So those as well as all my coaching options, both pre-made plans, one-on-one -on -one coaching that can be tiered to as much support essentially as you need or want, or scaled back to as little as you may need. Uh, all the details and options for there can be found for that can be found at zachbitter.com as well. Uh, finally, if you enjoy this episode or any of the other ones, or just like this show and want to help me grow it. What goes a long ways is liking, sharing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast, listening platforms, and spreading the word on your social media channels through uh, letting your friends and family know that you enjoyed a specific episode and where they can find it. Finally, uh, if you want to support the show through the show sponsors because they have a product that you're already using or that you're interested in including in your lifestyle, if you let them know you came through the Human Performance Outliers podcast, that helps me grow the show and produce more episodes as well. This episode and all episodes show sponsor links, details, and discounts can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This, as well as all the other things I mentioned link-wise, can also be found in the show notes for this particular episode too. So if you're already on your app and you just want to click the description, you can likely access that stuff through there as well. Uh, so there we go. This episode sponsors include my friends at ultimate direction and their hydration gear as well as athletic greens, their multivitamin vitamin AG one product. Ultimate direction creates top 
quality hydration products and apparel. Their hydration products range from bottles, handhelds, waist packs, and belts, vests, and full packs and backpacks. All are designed to fit comfortably and securely so you can head out on your run, workout, hike, or adventure with all the proper equipment to keep you prepared and hydrated. Some of my favorites that I often use while training and racing include their Race Vest 6.0, Utility Belt Plus, and their Clutch Handheld Water Bottle. I like the handhelds for shorter outings or outings I can easily refill, belts for humid weather runs where I may need a bit more supplies, and their vests for longer outings in drier weather climates. If you need to gear up for your outdoor adventure, run, or simply need a handheld water bottle or backpack for your gym workout of choice, you can do so and support the Human Performance Outliers podcast at the same time by clicking through the links in the show notes or at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Athletic Green's flagship product, AG1, is a supplement that contains 75 high-quality vitamin, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I like to take one scoop of AG1 first thing in the morning. Usually I'll mix it with about eight ounces of cold water and have that right before my first cup of coffee. I like to take it on an empty stomach because per Athletic Greens, that's the best way to absorb all of those 75 high quality vitamins and minerals the best. So usually I'm heading out for a run after I've been awake for about an hour or so in the morning and I like to have an empty stomach anyway so that fits nicely there along with my cup of coffee first things first. AG1 is lifestyle friendly and fits into a keto, paleo, low carb, dairy free or gluten free and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their product based on the latest science and third-party testing. On top of that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I love these travel packs because they're these little green square packages that lay flat and I can just stuff a few of them in my suitcase. And if I'm out of town for a few days, I know I got that First thing in the morning, 75 high-quality vitamin minerals sitting there waiting for me. So if you want to check that out, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You can find links to that in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Let's jump into these. First one, how important is a well-executed taper for a hundred kilometer and what does it look like? So I think a well-executed taper is generally a good strategy for any endurance race, regardless of whether you're doing a five kilometer, hundred kilometer or something in between or further. Uh, it's uh, you know essentially what you're trying to do with that is you're trying to give yourself the opportunity to get your body and mind fresh uh, for the race itself and really leverage all that training you did without losing the fitness you spent all that time acquiring. So things to consider with that is when we look at just how long it takes for, like, say, a given workout to actually start making noticeable impacts on your fitness, we're looking at like 10 to 14 days, somewhere in that neighborhood. 
Uh, we're also looking about a similar time frame in which you'll start to see your fitness decrease if you decide to just completely stop whatever activity it was you're doing. Uh, another thing to consider is once you've acquired a certain level of fitness, you can maintain that with about 50% of the, the, the work you had been doing to get there in the first place. So taking all of these things and considering them, I like to look at about a two-week taper as kind of ideal. I think it's enough time to let your body recover and your mind recover from the training you did and be excited and fresh and ready to go on race day. Uh, but it's short enough where there's really no scenario in which you're going to lose any sort of fitness in that time frame. You're also not completely stopping during those two weeks. You are going to be doing some training. It's just going to be reduced. Uh, so I think that's kind of the the right spot to target. You can flex that if you need a little extra time or if you feel you do a little bit better. There's other ways to kind of structure tapers than what I'm going to describe. The way I like is two weeks and then a progressive reduction leading into rest day where that first week you drop your volume and your intensity uh, to about 70% of what your training was leading into the taper. And then that week leading into the race, about 50%. On top of that, what you do with that training is kind of the next question. So uh, this was a 100-kilometer race, which since that's kind of long, uh, most people are going to be running 100 kilometers at a fairly low intensity uh, in the easy category for a lot of people. You may have some of the faster folks pushing kind of up into moderate intensity for, fate, for parts of the race anyway. Uh, but generally speaking... During that taper, just like the final phase of your training, you should be prioritizing intensities and specifics that are most closely related to what you'll be doing on race day. So what you do with that two-week taper might be different depending on the distance. Like if you were doing something like a 5K, you might keep some short intervals in there at a reduced volume in order to kind of keep that thing that you're going to actually be using on race day a little more in place and, 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 and sharpened, so to speak. For 100K, that's going to likely just be kind of, you know, an easier run, maybe some strides or something like that at the end of it. If you if you feel like that's going to be something that kind of helps you feel confident on race day. Uh, but generally speaking, I like two weeks, uh, progressive reduction in volume and intensity by about uh, to 70% of what you were doing to, to 50%. And that should have you feeling good. Uh, one thing I'll usually just suggest is if you are a week out and you notice, I feel like I still could use a little bit of extra recovery err on the side of caution. Like I said, like the likelihood of you losing any fitness leading into this in that last week is, is basically not there. It's more kind of just like, you know, you're going to be a little, maybe a little anxious and feel like you're kind of rusty. So more of a mental or psychological battle to get over than a physical one at that point. So if you do notice in those final couple of weeks, like having an extra rest day, that makes it a little more of an aggressive taper uh, I would definitely lean towards uh, the conservative side of things with that so that you are showing up on the race day excited, fresh, and ready to kind of go after it. Um, next question, can you share a little on increasing speed with long distance running? Great question. So I think the reason I like this question is because when sometimes when people think long distance, and when I think long distance, my mind goes to ultra marathons and like really long races and things like that. Uh, so 
when I think about that, I also think about how those races are often done at relatively low intensities. So it can be easy to think, well, speed work is unnecessary for this. Why would I do it? I'm never going to be running that fast on race day. When in reality, I believe that a lot of these things that we do in just even traditional Olympic distance training plans are valuable for longer ultra marathons. It just becomes a question of where are you going to place them and how are you going to prioritize them in your training plan? So let's hop into this. I think all things considered, you want to make sure you have a strong aerobic base established before you decide how to enter any sort of speed work, uh, anything that is going to kind of be above an easy pace entering moderate intensity. So developing that strong aerobic base is going to allow for the speed work that you do ultimately end up doing to be more impactful because you're going to have a better foundation to place it on. You are going to likely be able to do a higher amount of volume of that speed work based on having that strong aerobic base. And you're just going to be starting from a better position than you would be if you kind of didn't do that or kind of cut that short prematurely. So I've talked about this on other podcasts, but generally speaking, when it comes to developing your aerobic base, I like to watch the pace. If I can control the environment as much as possible uh, at the intensity that I would consider within the easy category. Uh, most people are going to consider this like a zone one or zone two at the high end of easy. Uh, I'd like a talk test for a lot of people too, where if you can carry a conversation while running, you are likely not passing through your easy into your modern intensity zones. Uh, so just kind of confirming that you have, whether you use heart rate, whether you use talk tests, whether you use prior training data, or if you go into an exercise lab and get all these things tested, uh, regardless of which one you do, you want to have that strong aerobic base that you can place that speed work on top of it. And what I like to do with that is watch my pace improve when given that same intensity. So if I keep seeing my pace improving week after week, uh, versus plateauing or, or, or regressing, that's a sign to me that I can kind of keep developing that. Obviously you're going to want to consider your timeline to some degree too, uh, in terms of what, uh, what you have available for you with, uh, you know, building this foundation when you have to maybe start doing some speed work. So that's also worth considering. Uh, but generally speaking, if you have no like strict timeline, really taking that, uh, aerobic development, to where it's it's plateaued, where you're not seeing it dropping more, or you've maxed out the volume available in your training week and adding more is just not feasible for your schedule. These are all times when you could, you could kind of maybe consider what's the next step or how do I introduce speed work? Uh, so once this is solid, uh, consistently hitting goal available volume, pace begins to plateau, hit or surpass previous metrics for pace at that intensity. Uh, those are your signs you're looking for. Then you want to start introducing some speed work, which I would define as anything in the moderate to high intensity range or other ways to look at it would be if you follow zones like zone three or above. Uh, if you're looking at like heart rates, we're, we're looking at like usually 80% or above of your max heart rate and uh, having uh, you know that be considered speed work. Obviously, the lower end of the speed work spectrum, you're going to be able to do more volume of the higher end of the speed work uh, spectrum, the less volume you're going to be able to um, tolerate for any given session or any like time period. So considering those things are important. I typically like to focus on kind of a couple intensities in speed work as kind of like the foundation. And those are like an intensity 
that I will build short intervals around. So uh, like 30 seconds to four minutes at an intensity that you could sustain for you know roughly 12 to 15 minutes in an all out race day type setting. And then long intervals where you would uh, pin that to an intensity that you could likely sustain for about 60 minutes in an all out race day type setting. Building your workouts around that is kind of the next step. And in terms of when and how to do them, you want to kind of think about, uh, first of all, what is your goal? Are you just trying to add speed work to add a little flavor to your training? Are you looking at adding speed work to prepare for a specific event? If it's the latter, then I think you follow that principle of least specific to most specific. So if you're doing something a little bit longer, then maybe doing more of the short intervals earlier on in your training is going to be wise and then transition a little bit more into longer intervals as you get closer to the race day. If the race is very long where it's actually in an easy pace uh, intensity, then I think separating those two short interval, long interval intensities becomes more and more of a, uh, of a really solid strategic strategy. If you're doing more Olympic distance stuff where you may be moving in and out of different intensities, I think that's maybe a way to maybe group them together a little more consistently where you're following a more standard speed work schedule of say like doing short intervals one day of the week, longer intervals of tempo runs another day of the week, and then long run development on a, on a third week and have those be kind of like your three quality sessions during the week. Um, versus say like doing two short interval sessions, uh, really spending, you know, four to six weeks, letting that develop before transitioning into say those long intervals uh, where you're going to be trying to build those out for a couple sessions per week. Uh, along that same line, I definitely really like a strategy where whenever when you're doing speed work, whether it's moderate intensity stuff, which would be more of those long intervals or higher intensity stuff, which would be more of those short intervals, that you look at that as something where going all out to the very last interval you can sustain is likely going to take future training off the calendar and put you in a position where you actually do less volume at the intensity you're trying to develop than you would if you were a little more conservative on any one given workout. So what do I mean by this? Let's say we're targeting short intervals and we're doing three minutes. So the way I structure short intervals, short intervals is usually going to be a one-to-one -one work to rest ratio. So if the work is three minutes hard, the rest should be three minutes, easy jog or walk. If I would go out and say, do eight of those eight by three minutes, but by doing that, I can't do another speed work for another week, week and a half, and just feel kind of tired, sore, a little more miserable the remainder of the week versus say doing a five by three minute on one day. And then a five by three minute, a few days later and being able to recover from that quickly, feel a lot better in training, and then ultimately end up with an extra six minutes of volume at that intensity at the end of the week, that's the win there. So you want to be careful about becoming a hero on some of these workouts. If you ring yourself dry in a short interval session, chances are that your opportunity to do that again at a high quality is going to be low. So things to consider is what is your actual volume accumulated at the intensity over time? And you want to favor the one that allows you to do the most of that. And then also quality. So the other scenario that can happen too, is you go out and do one of those hero workouts and maybe you get it done, but those final couple intervals are subpar or a little bit worse than the other ones. 
Well, if you had even split that evenly and done the exact same volume, but split it into two sessions, the fact that the two session setup is going to be higher quality is likely going to get you more bang for your buck, so to speak, even though when you think about it in hindsight, you maybe thought like the one session was a bigger, bigger training load. So think about leaving your, I like to say, leave a couple in the tank uh, with the short intervals, the long intervals, which tend to be fewer of them and longer in nature. I typically am doing like eight to maybe up to 20 minutes for that, for those type of intensities, you know, those like, you know, leave one, one in the tank, maybe is a way to look at that, but same, same exact principle of is doing two sessions split going to get you more volume and, or at a higher quality. And the answer is usually going to be yes. So I favor that sort of approach versus kind of having that one big workout be like the end all be all of the week, so to speak. Um, also along this stuff, you want to consider the way you're progressing here too. So uh, I like in kind of like a standard framework, which I will often deviate from based on either my, how I feel if it's me, myself, or with a coaching client, if they are giving signs of needing a, a slight adjustment here, but usually we're going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of like a three week build and then a one week deload. So one week deload is essentially just kind of like a mini taper that you embed throughout a plan, especially when you get into phases where you're doing more speed work, which I would consider kind of not sustainable for year round. You're giving yourself these like periods during that where you take a step back, reducing volume and intensity the same way you would probably do for a taper and let everything kind of catch up. It doesn't mean you stop running altogether. It doesn't mean you take out all your workouts. It just means you reduce your overall volume and you reduce the volume at which you're spending uh, doing speed work for about a week and let everything kind of catch up before you get into the next phase of training. There's some debate about kind of how to structure those three weeks between doing like a progressive build where each week gets slightly more difficult before that deload week versus kind of front loading the harder week in the beginning and then getting a little bit easier. I think there's some valuable reasons to do each of them. It just kind of depends on what where it depends on the individual, where they're at and kind of what information they have, like someone who's really experienced and that you really kind of know uh, a lot about what they can tolerate. You know, a lot about their injury risk. Front loading that first week is maybe a little less risky in that situation. It may allow you to uh, have some higher quality workouts in that third week. If you're not asking yourself to do quite as much on tired legs, uh, someone who's new to speed work or perhaps is a little bit more of an injury risk. I think I personally would favor kind of a little bit more of a progression because that would allow, uh, allow a little more um, adjustment in terms of making sure that we're not overdoing and getting them hurt during that first week by kind of loading up things. So things like looking at like injury risk, past experience with, uh, with speed work and things like that. And then ultimately like proper dosing, I think like proper dosing is really the, the key for either of these. If you are able to uh, progressively add the right amount and not make a mistake there, then in theory, you should recover enough from one session to the next to be able to do a bigger third week and then go into that deload week, kind of having your big one at the end. Uh, same thing with the other direction though, too. Like if you're going to dose a heavier in that first week, uh, the, the advantage there is maybe if you realize by the second and third week that you can carry a higher training load, you have some adjustment time and you can even ramp those second and third week up a little bit if, if the signs are there. Um, but really, I think at the end of the day, whichever one you're going to be able to consistently do, 
and do at the highest quality and the most overall volume spent at that with those first two things considered is likely going to be the best path forward for you with when it comes to the speed work side of programming those uh, three weeks leading into like a deload week. All right, last or no, two more questions. Losing weight while training for an event uh, is keto optimal for this. So first of all, I want to look at just like losing weight while training for an event is something you want to think about before implementing because weight loss and performance tend to be dueling goals, meaning that if you try to lose weight while improving performance, it likely comes at the expense of that performance not developing quite the way it would if you were well-fed or you were meeting your energy your energy outputs. Uh, there's going to be a little bit of a nuance with that, whereas if someone has enough weight to lose, it may be less impactful because their body has the resources available to kind of lose some of that weight and use that towards their energy output. Uh, as well as if someone has enough weight to lose where it's actually going to make a meaningful difference from them in terms of they're going to get faster simply by becoming lighter, you know, then, then you could have a scenario where performance actually does improve with the weight reduction, despite it not necessarily on paper being ideal when we're looking at people who are already at their goal weight and focusing purely on performance. Uh, so I think you want to consider these things though, before you get going, going and also consider what's your priority, what's your, your, your most important thing. You can have more than one goal, but you do probably want to decide which goal is it comes first, so to speak. So if your number one goal is, is losing a bit of weight and then the training is kind of like an add-on to help you get there and then doing an event, preparing for an event just adds a lot of the you know, motivation to stay out there, the excitement of being part of the running community, and then ultimately doing a race and getting you know, I mean, it feels great to finish a race. So that can be motivating to simply have that and keep you more uh, on the path that you're trying to head. Uh, I think these are all just worth worthwhile things to consider when you're kind of deciding how to structure this. With that said, I think there are some things to consider either way that are going to help you minimize the negative impacts of being in a caloric deficit while also kind of focusing on performance. And one of these is going to be your protein in intake. So if you are actively trying to lose weight and you're training, I think having aiming for the higher higher end range of protein is going to be wise so that you are more likely to preserve lean tissue uh, versus losing a higher percentage of lean muscle, which you likely want to keep around uh, during this late weight loss phase. So I like to go for about a gram of protein for every pound of that goal weight you are targeting. Uh, that is going to get you most of the way there is just getting that right amount of protein. The next thing you can do to take a step forward, it's a smaller step, but it's still a step forward and is probably more important if you're trying to lose weight and maintain lean mass would be to leverage your protein muscle synthesis, which the research would suggest that if you divide that protein intake up into say three to four servings over the course of the day versus having like an all in one setting or all in two settings, you are likely going to more, you're going to, you're going to increase protein muscle synthesis, which is just going to preserve some more of that lean, lean mass versus like losing some of it along the way with your weight loss. If you're interested in uh, more information on this or, more academic information on this outside of what I'm saying is uh, check out my interview with Alan Argon. It's episode 309 of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. He is one of the leading protein researchers in the world, and he has definitely 
very familiar with the research where it's at. He's also familiar with what like we think we probably know, but haven't proven yet. And I just, I, I really like the way he kind of describes that sort of stuff. So check out that podcast if you want to really get into like the ins and outs of proper protein dosage, breaking it up in servings versus all at once and kind of where the the pluses and minuses are for either approach. Uh, the other thing too, and Alan would mention this also is if you're in this situation where you're trying to lose weight, but still perform, one of the best things you can do to help preserve that lean mass and make sure you're not losing a lot of muscle along, along the way is include strength work in your training program. If you're actually trying to lose weight and you have a couple, couple strength sessions per week, that is going to help you maintain that muscle, even in that caloric deficit versus if you're not strength training at all, your body's more likely to ditch that muscle because the you're, you're bringing in less calories than you are, uh, um, putting out, so to speak. So don't neglect speed or don't neglect strength work during a weight loss phase, especially when performance is the goal and preserving lean muscle mass is part of the goal as well. Um, also another, just kind of like, I think, uh, standard piece of advice with this is aim for a timeline where this is done kind of during your base phase of training if possible versus the peaking phase, because your base training tends to be lower intensity tends to be a time frame where you're more likely to probably be able to lose lose weight without compromising performance in a, in a bigger way versus like the time frame where you're really peaking and trying to get ready for a race itself. A lot of times the peaking phase can be somewhat unsustainable year round. So asking your body to perform at that level and reduce, uh, reduce its intake is likely going to create problems down the road, especially if you're either, uh, you know, close to your weight loss goal and don't have much left to give or, you're simply off and don't even need to be losing weight. I think when you're peaking your peak phase, you should try to make sure you're definitely getting in the right amount of energy to supply the demands for that. If you want your performance to kind of head in the right direction. And some of this can just be giving yourself enough ramp time to get to that goal weight before you hit that peak phase training. Again, I'll, I'll just re-reference what I said in the beginning, prioritizing your goals can answer some of these questions too, because it may be that you have a very big goal with weight loss that is going to take more time than it would to do one, two, or multiple buildups. And in that case, I think just consider what I said before in terms of priorities and kind of how you structure your thing, your things and, and recognize that, um, you know, the, the end goal is maybe further down the road, a little further down the road, but the, the same kind of principles apply. I think, um, being a little more conservative on how much you lose for a given week is, is, is going to be something that makes it a little more sustainable. Finally, second part of this question is keto optimal for this. I think this is going to depend a bit on the person. There's one, one thing that keto is going to likely have an advantage of in, with, with at least a lot of people who've had success with it is that it tends to be a little more satiating in the sense that if you are running a calorie deficit, you may not notice it from the same type of hunger pangs you would be getting if you were on more of a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Uh, some of this might just be because a, a lot of times when people will switch to a structured diet, like a ketogenic diet, they tend to turn to more whole foods, which also may be more satiating and kind of aid in that, that less feeling of hunger versus eating a lot of hyper palatable foods that are going to do a lot less in terms of making you feel full. So one of the hard parts about long sustained weight loss is going to be, 
it, you're going to have more hunger pangs. You're going to feel like you're not eating as much as you need for at least a period of time. And that can oftentimes make it hard to stay consistent and stay heading the direction you want to head. Some people report that keto helps minimize that where they don't feel like they have those hunger pangs and they can better control their calorie intake, or they can just eat intuitively on it. And they sort of self-regulate without even thinking about it. You see that a lot of times being reported too. So I think you just need to ask yourself um, whether you have a easier time with like a keto low carb approach in terms of sticking to the plan, or you don't, if you do, that's going to be a good move for you to know in order to make it uh, lasting and, and get you where you want to be versus problematic, uh, over something else. All right. Final question, training with less water for an ultra worth it or no real benefit. I would lean against this one. So the, I, I understand what the question is probably driving at is like, you have this situation in ultra marathons, like single day ultra marathon events where you cannot keep on top of hydration optimally. You, there's a scenario where no matter what you do, you're likely going to finish that race being at least slightly dehydrated. So it's more of a plan of like doing the best you can versus being optimal. And part of that's just because the body can't process enough, the same amount of water and fluids it's going to lose over the course of an event like that. So by trying to, in theory, I guess, trying to train yourself to be more efficient with it could be a path forward. I think even if that were the case, uh, you're likely going to give yourself bigger issues than you are solutions by going this path. And part of that is because when you look at the, the data with dehydration and how it impacts performance, once you start getting to about two to 3% loss is where we start to see performance making a pretty meaningful dip. So if you're trying to kind of train yourself to run on a dehydrated state, not only is it potentially dangerous, but it's very much likely going to create a scenario in which your workouts are suboptimal. And if you're running consistently suboptimal workouts, you're likely going to be at a worse point on race day and, and not doing yourself any favors with that. Um, if you're interested about hydration and just hydration strategies and personalizing that stuff, I did an episode, it's episode 300 of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And I go into kind of what we know about hydration, some targets and starting points, how to maybe individualize it for yourself. Uh, also, I mean, if you want to get really into it, you can get things like uh, sweat rep, sweat tests where you can see how much electrolytes you're losing for every liter of water you consume, um, stuff like that. So all in all, I think better path would be to practice what you will likely do on race day as much as possible. So you know what you can expect from your hydration plan. And you can find yourself in a position where you're more likely to be able to stick to and sustain that plan and, and put yourself in the best position on race day. All right, folks, like I mentioned in the beginning, if you have any follow-up questions about these topics or would like to introduce another one for me to do on a future episode, feel free to reach out to me. You can do that at hpopodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on social media at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter at ZBitter Endurance on Facebook. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and 
regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.